How's it going, West Village family? Uh, welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. If you're new, uh, haven't been tuning in with us before, uh, my name is Chris, one of the leaders uh, here at the church. And we are in week three of a little four-week mini-series that we're doing called Collision of Kingdoms, where we're looking at how uh, the gospel, the church, and politics interact, how Christians are uh, to think when it comes to the political realm or the political arena. And part of the reason that we're doing this uh, series at this time is is really just because politics has, in a, in a very real way, become the new religion of our kind of secular culture. But it's not just the new religion of the secular culture. Uh, when culture sneezes, the church tends to catch a cold, if you will. And what I'm seeing, at least, uh, you know, from where I sit, is that for a lot of Christians, uh, the political, um, the political vision, the political ideologies have kind of seeped into the church. They've seeped into the gospel, and and it's become harder and harder to discern uh, for the Christian what is the right way to navigate these things. And what I've just seen, again, just my observations, is that a lot of Christians actually are more politically engaged than they are engaged in the gospel. Uh, they know more about their political parties, their political leaders, and their policies than they do about the Bible, than they do uh, about Jesus. They're, 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 they seem to be more in tune with that than they are with what's going on in, in their own church and, and with Jesus and his mission in their city. That just troubles me, grieves my heart, really does. And so what we want to do in this series is just kind of ask the question, how are we as followers of Jesus to think when it comes to politics? How are we to think uh, biblically about the political task? And the question we're going to ask today uh, is, is a little bit of a, a pressing question. It's, it's a question that has a lot, of, um, a lot of teeth in this current moment we find ourselves. The, the question is this, is it ever okay for a church to disobey the government? Is it ever okay for a church to disobey the government? Uh, just to timestamp where we are, I know if you're watching this in real time, you know where we are, but if this is getting watched after the fact, it is February uh, 2021. We are almost 12 months into uh, you know the, the COVID global pandemic. And <clears throat> for most of the last 12 months, not all of, but for most of the last 12 months, uh, the church has had significant restrictions placed upon her in terms of our ability to meet, both in large groups like our Sunday gatherings, but also in smaller groups like home fellowships. In our context, that would be like community groups, other churches, maybe small groups, uh, and has been forced to do primarily, if not exclusively, uh, digital online ministry. So we're talking like internet church, like you're sitting at home in your underwear watching this right now, uh, or you know, church over Zoom, small group and community done over Zoom. And this is really forced this question of what we would call civil disobedience. Is it okay for the church to practice civil disobedience in this moment? And there's really kind of been a huge schism or a divide within the church around this issue. There's sort of been two main camps, if you will, like in terms of like how they've been processing this. And so there's there's been a group of churches, a group of leaders, a group of Christians who have functionally said that, that when the government comes along and deems the church non-essential, which, which I would just say, I mean, that is probably not the most helpful term the government could have used, uh, you know, in terms of like being winsome with regards to like anybody for that matter. If I was a small business owner, my business was called non-essential. Like that would be 
Uh, it's essential to me, right? Like church is essential to my well-being. So maybe not the most helpful terms that might have, uh, you know, uh, might have been useful for the government to use some different language there. But nonetheless, these are the terms they used. <clears throat> when the government comes in and deems the church not non-essential, there's a group of Christians that would come along and say that this is actually classified as government overreach, that it's an infringement on our rights as Canadian citizens. Uh, they would say things like, uh, you know, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, and we'll come back and unpack some of these arguments in just a little bit, but they would say things like the, the pandemic isn't as bad as advertised uh, and therefore, you know, the church should go ahead and meet. They would say like the lockdowns are really bad for mental health, for society, for the economy, all those things. Uh, and then they would say that, you know, there there is a biblical or theological uh, mandate. We'll talk about this as well in Hebrews chapter 10, that the church is supposed to be together, supposed to gather. And so because of that, because of those things, the, the church needs to, you know, disobey the government. We need to civilly disobey the government. Then on the other side of this schism or this divide, there are those who would say, you know what, you guys on that side, you're, you're wrong. You're, you're dead wrong. We cannot gather, and it's actually unloving to our neighbors for us to gather. It's unloving for our communities, to the most vulnerable. <clears throat> so we're not going to gather. We shouldn't gather. And it's actually uh, wrong of us to gather. Uh, now, now, here's what I would say to that. Now, again, you're at home. You're watching this you know, online. We're doing online church. So it kind of tips my hand a little bit as to where we, as our uh, West Village, uh, as far as West Village goes, stand on this issue. But we have to understand something, and, and this is what I think is so important for us, that we, we must approach these questions from a biblical mindset. Like, we want to have a Christian mind or a Christian worldview when we interpret questions like this. All questions, but questions like this. And so, oh, we have a lot of people who are making political arguments as for why the church should meet. Those aren't good arguments. We have a lot of people that are making social arguments. Those aren't necessarily good arguments. We have a lot of people who are saying things like, you know, like the unloving argument. It's unloving to meet. Not necessarily the best argument. Not a good argument, even, I would contend. Because we have to think biblically about these things. So our highest, our highest authority, our highest ideal, our highest... Um, uh, you know, inf informant as to how we view these issues has to be the scriptures. It has to be the gospel of Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to like actually ask the question, what does the scriptures teach on this? What are we told in the Bible um, about what it means for the church to honor the government, to submit to the government, and to disobey, and when to disobey, and all that stuff. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up, go to Romans chapter 13. This is like the you know, the, the, the main text people will go to when it taught, when we start to talk about <clears throat> the way that the church and the government are supposed to interact with one another. And here we have the apostle Paul writing a letter to a church. Keep in mind that he is writing to a church that at this point in time is under the rule of the Roman emperor Nero. Nero was the perhaps the most tyrannical leader that uh, any, you know, sort of uh, official church has ever had to live under. Like he, like he was very, very active in his persecution of Christians. Like, like actually was using their uh, bodies as um, fuel to light the torches in his garden. So, so just keep that in mind as you read this. Like these, 
uh, Christians that Paul is writing to in Romans 13 are under intense persecution. We're not, we're not talking about their rights being taken. We're talking about they didn't have rights. And so here's what Paul writes. I'm going to read all seven verses. We're going to go chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. And I'm going to come back and just pull a couple of things out for us. So chapter 13, starting in verse 1, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Let everyone be subject to the, gov- to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from Uh, Do you want to be free from fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Uh, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. So so let me just pull a couple of thoughts out of Romans 13. There's a lot to be said about these verses as it pertains to the issue at hand uh, for today. But I want to just pull out a couple of like kind of big guiding principles to help frame up this conversation and this question that we're seeking to answer. The, the first principle or the first uh, thing that we see here as it, as it relates to government is this. And this is really, I think, a fundamental truth that we as followers of Jesus have to get our minds around. And this is the idea, and Paul says it right here in verses 1 and 2, that God is the one who establishes government. Now, look at what he says right here in verses 1 and 2. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. We'll come back to that in just a second. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church and consequently uh, the church in Rome and consequently to us is that God is the one who establishes government. Now, this is important. Okay, this is really important for us to understand because what the scriptures holistically teach is not simply that God uh, appoints the governments as we know them now, but that the idea of government is actually an idea that originated with God and not with us. So often when we think of government, we think of them as uh, the product of sin, right? Like we don't have a lot of really great things to say about politicians. Uh, politicians are crooks, you know, like, we, like just generally speaking, they're liars, they're thieves, they're out for their own gain. Uh, I would say that generally society does not have awesome things to say about politicians. Sometimes that's a reputation that politicians have earned to be sure, but make no mistake about it. The idea of government or governance 
is not the result of sin in the world. It's actually an idea that originated with God pre-fall. Uh, last week, if you listened in last week, if you didn't, you can go back and catch the podcast. But we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 and just this idea that God gave humanity through Adam and Eve what we called the dominion mandate. In other words, God gave authority to Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. And with that dominion over the earth came the ability to rule and reign. So as they grew, they had to organize. They had to uh, decide how they were going to live as a community. And this is a functional governance. It may not be governance in the sense that we know it now with elected officials and all the intricacies of a political system, but make no mistake about it, governance was a part of the lived reality for humanity before the fall happened. Now, certainly Genesis 3 is real, and certainly with the sin that entered in Genesis 3 came brokenness even into the political realm. But government, governance is actually instituted by God. And here's, here is something that I want you to think about and wrestle with. That throughout church history, the default position when it comes to government and the way that the Christian actually thinks about those who are in authority over him or her was not mistrust, but it was honor. I'll say that again. That throughout church history, the dominant view that Christians, men and women had, of those who had governance over them was not mistrust, but it was honor. Now think about that in the moment we find ourselves in. What is the default position even of the Christian when it comes to government? It's often mistrust. Now, sometimes, again, to be fair, it's earned. It's earned mistrust. Politicians have not always behaved and acted and governed in a way that warrants our trust. I'm not talking about blind obedience, but make no mistake about it. There is a reality that we are called to honor those who have been put in authority over us because they have been put there by God himself. But I actually think there's something significant here for us to talk about because coming, you know, entering into this conversation and starting from a place of mistrust towards our government can actually get us into a lot of trouble. I want you just to think with me for a second. I mean, if you're on social media, I feel like that's a bad idea. Like, I don't think social media existed pre-fall. I think social media is the result of Genesis chapter three. But if you go on social media, at least on the feeds that I am on, here is what I see. I see that Christians are often the ones who are propagating not just misinformation, but actually false information when it comes to the government. I see Christians who are often the ones leading the charge in what I would call, and I know this is a dirty word and I don't want to be offensive. I'm not trying to needlessly be offensive or put somebody off from listening to the rest of this message, but, but I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I, I often see Christians on the front end of of espousing what, what would be described as conspiracy theories. Uh, the idea that, you know, like the moment we find ourselves in right now is, you know, like it's like the word is not pandemic, but plandemic. Like this is just a giant scheme uh, by the, you know, a, a few big players in the world or the governments of the world or China or whatever to just gain control over our lives. Uh, you know, you see this when you start to talk about vaccinations. Like you have Christians saying, do not get a vaccination. This is the mark of the beast. And there's all kinds of, like it gets really dark really fast when you start to get into the conspiracy theories around the vaccinations. I remember just after the uh, United States election, 
or just before the United States election, uh, even after the election was done pre-inauguration, I watched videos of, of Christians, Christian leaders, church leaders standing on stages in churches declaring that God had spoken to them and that even though Donald Trump lost the election, he was still going to become the president of the United States. What? And then a few days after, you saw the same video, or, or at least the same church leaders in videos, like walking all that back and trying to figure, you know, trying to explain to their people and to all, like, all the people that had watched their videos why, you know, they were mistaken and what prophecy really means. Like, and you're just watching this, you're going, this is madness. This is madness. And, and I think it stems from a, a lack of a robust Christian worldview that says we are actually called to honor the government. We are actually called to honor the ones that God has put in authority over us. Again, not blind trust, not blind obedience. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying honor. That's what the apostle Paul says here. God establishes those who are in authority. Remember Romans 13, he's writing to Christians who are underneath the authority of Nero. And he's saying, God put them there, so honor them. And there's this sense in this call for us that we're to do the same thing. Here's the second thing I want to pull out of this. And this is the most relevant to the question that we're dealing with today. And that is this, that we are called to submit to the government. I mean, Paul says it really, really clearly right here in Romans 13, verse one, he says, let everyone be subject. Let everyone be subject or servant, right? Underline that word, circle that word to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. Paul makes it abundantly clear that we are called to submit to and be subject to our governing authorities. Now, notice he doesn't put qualifiers on it. He doesn't say submit to them if you agree with them. He doesn't say submit to them if it's the party you voted for. He doesn't say submit to them if you like their ideas or you agree with their policies. He says submit to them. That's the principle. Now, there are exceptions. We'll get to those. But your preferences, your conveniences, those aren't the exceptions. The video you watched on YouTube about how whatever the government's doing right now is, you know, some fulfillment to some end times prophecy, right? Like that's not the exception Paul gives. It's not what he, it's not what he says. It's not what he says. And follow Paul's logic here. He says, if God is the one who establishes government, then your submission to government is actually connected to your submission to God. The two are inextricably linked. Uh, Peter, who was one of Jesus's closest disciples, says a very similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here's what he writes. He says, submit yourselves, listen to what he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as in the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So, so Peter says the same thing that Paul says. The, the instruction that we have from the scriptures on how we are to view our government, the principle that we are given is that we are called to submit. And so what I would say to us is the standard operating principle for Christians and for the church as it relates to the government is that we are called to submit to them, to humbly submit to them and to honor them. That's where this all starts. So then the obvious question is, and this is the, 
The next question I get whenever I have this conversation with everybody, and believe me, I'm having this conversation a lot these days. The next obvious question is, are you saying that no matter what the government does, we are supposed to submit to them? Uh, that no matter, like, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, we're just supposed to be like, you know, blind sheep or lemmings and follow the government and do whatever they say. And the answer to that is no. No, it's not what I'm saying. Well, how do we discern? I mean, it seems incongruent with what you just said, Chris. Well, again, we have, we have the scriptures as our guide, right? We don't, we don't look to culture. We don't look to our political ideologies. We don't trust our feelings. Uh, we don't trust other sources. We go to the scriptures. The scriptures are that which uh, guide us. That's the anchor to our faith and to, to what we believe and to how we make these decisions. So this is where the Bible becomes very helpful because, yes, it gives us the standard operating principle that we see in Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, but it does something else. It gives us this comprehensive ability to apply the principles. And so we have actually an instance that can help inform that. If you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 5, just a few pages to the left. And in Acts chapter 5, there's this incident whereby um, the, the church has you know, come into inception. This is kind of post uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has just gone uh, and ascended into heaven. The church has been filled with the Spirit. Uh, the disciples, who are now known as the apostles, and the church are going out. They're preaching. They're proclaiming. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Miracles are being performed, and, and they're really causing a ruckus, right? Like, they're getting a crowd. People are coming to faith. The church is booming. It's growing. There's a lot. At this point, there's a lot of Jewish converts. And so the Jewish leaders at that time, known as the Sanhedrin, were uh, they were a little bit upset. They were upset with uh, the church. They were upset with the Christians because they were starting to lose their hold on their community. And so they call the, the leaders of the church in uh, and they said, hey, guys, no, no more of this Jesus stuff. Like you need to go and you can go, but no more preaching about the, you know, Jesus, no more preaching the gospel. And the church, the church leaders go out and they just continue to do it. They continue to preach. And what we see here in Acts chapter 5, these verses we're going to look at, is the church leaders being dragged again, once again, in front of the Sanhedrin, okay? So in front of their governing authorities. And here's what we see in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The apostles were brought in uh, and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. So this is the governing body to be questioned by the high priest. Here's what he says. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, okay? Not to teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, no more proclaiming the gospel. And he said, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Uh, so governing leaders say to church leaders, no more preaching the gospel. Okay, they functionally put restrictions on the church. Well, look at what the church leaders say. Peter says, okay, Peter says here right in verse uh, 29, Peter responds, and here's what he said. Now remember, Peter, who wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, you know, submit to governing leaders for the Lord's sake, okay? So you got to kind of reconcile this thing. This is where we have we have a principle, and now we're going to have like uh, like a, a limiting, uh, or sorry, we have an operating uh, standard, and now we have a limiting principle on that standard, okay? Look at what Peter says. So Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as the prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so we get this 
sense here that the disciples or the apostles and the church are not going to obey. Okay. So we have our standard operating principle, always submit. But then we, we have this like limiting reality to that operating principle, this limiting factor. What is it? Well, look at what Peter says. Says it really clearly. We must obey God rather than human beings. Now, John Stott, uh, he's a pastor, theologian, wrote a commentary uh, on the book of Acts. And in his commentary on the book of Acts, this is what he writes specifically on this passage, talking about the issue of civil disobedience, what we're talking about today. He says, we are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But, hey, listen to this. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. I'm going to read that again. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. So according to John Stott, according to what we see here in Acts chapter 5, there's this reality that we must first obey God. That if the state asks us to do something that God says we're not supposed to do, we can't obey the state. We must obey God. If the state refuses to allow us to do something that God commands that we must do, then we must obey the state. So we have the general rule of submission to the government, but we have this limiting principle which says we must first obey God. So, let's apply this to the moment that we find ourselves in. Again, there's many Christians who would fall into the camp that says that this is our time. This is the moment that we are called to defy the government. I would say that that camp, as the pandemic goes on and as the restrictions go on, I'm just sensing that that's a growing, growing number of Christians and church leaders. So in other words, what we're seeing is more and more churches, more and more Christians who are saying, you know what, like, let's just blow off the restrictions. Let's just meet. Some are doing it brazenly in order to make a point. Some are doing it quietly so as to fly under the radar. But the bottom line is this. When you boil down their arguments, it kind of breaks down into roughly, I'd say, three There are kind of three reasons, three main reasons why people would land in this spot when it comes to this issue. Um, And and I'll just say this. I wish I had more time to explore these issues more fully. And I I don't want to do a disservice to my friends, to my brothers who hold a position counter to mine. Uh, So I'm going to skim through these quickly. But know that uh, I'm sympathetic to all of their all of their positions and all of their arguments. Okay, so so here's the first argument that uh, those in the camp of this is the moment to defy the the government would make. The first one is what I would just call a political argument. So they would say something to the effect of lockdowns and restrictions. These are government overreach and they're an infringement on our rights and freedoms as Canadian citizens. Now, again, I'm sympathetic to that argument, you know. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the reality that, you know, that this may be the case. That, and it's actually quite conceivable that some of these cases that are going to end up before uh, the courts are going to be deemed government overreach. Uh, but I think for us, the reality that we have to wrestle with is the idea that, that the government has asked us 
to have restrictions placed upon us, yes, but they are temporary restrictions. It's not as if the government is saying we can never meet. The government is asking us to set aside our right to meet for a time so that they can do their best to protect our communities. I think that's a noble thing for us to do. I also am not compelled by political arguments because politics is not my my highest North Star. It's not the the number one thing that drives my decision-making. What is the scriptures? And if the government were to say, church, you're never allowed to meet, I would say we should meet. But that's not what the government is saying. The government is asking us to refrain from meeting for a time. Uh, The second argument I would say falls into this this kind of idea of of what I'm just going to call a social argument for lack of a better term. And this is where people say things like uh, the effect of the lockdowns are bad. They're actually worse than the virus itself. You know, you've probably heard people say things like the cure is worse than the disease. They'd say the survival rate of the virus is quite high. I'm not going to quote statistics because I don't have them and I don't want to, you know, I'm not an expert, but I play one on social media, right? Uh, Survival rates high, suicides are up, overdoses are up, mental health is an issue, marriages are falling apart, and the economy is falling apart. Again, deeply sympathetic to this argument. Like I I feel it. I, I feel the reality of this. I feel the reality of marriages falling apart. I feel the reality of mental health stuff. I feel, you know, in, in my role with counseling and some of the stuff we're seeing in our midst, like, like I'm sympathetic to this argument. But, 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 again, this is not the number one thing that drives the bus for the Christians or for the church. And so here's how I would respond to this argument. The first thing that I would say is that in order to use this line of reasoning to to disregard the government health orders and to disobey the government, you would have to assume that you somehow have superior knowledge than the government has. And it's not as if the government is not aware that this is a strain on our economy. It's not as if the government isn't aware that this is a strain on people's mental health. It's not as if the government isn't aware of all the the damage that the lockdowns are doing. I mean, they're, I would imagine our government leaders are spending, you know, 12, 15 hours a day, six, seven days a week thinking about this, laboring over this, studying this, trying to figure out the best way forward for the people. I've watched some YouTube videos, read some articles I'm not an expert. I'm just not an expert. I am going to assume that they know more than I know. And then what I would say next is, the only way that we could consider then that this would be an actual reason for disobeying the government is if we assume that the government is acting in bad faith. In other words, we assume that the government you know, they, they actually have a hidden agenda. Like they're sitting in a back room somewhere twisting, you know, their evil mustaches, like, you know, just like, oh, we finally got everybody. We're destroying the economy. We're destroying our communities. We're destroying churches and religious centers. Finally, everything we've ever wanted is coming to pass. You'd have to assume that the government's acting with nefarious intent. And I'm just not prepared to say that. I'm not prepared to say any of that. And so therefore, I I don't think that that is a good, a substantive enough reason for us to to lead the church forward and to disregard disregard the public health orders. 
third argument is this, and this falls into what I would call the theological argument. And this is a bigger one that I don't have. There's a number of theological arguments that I would say are, are worth talking about, but I only have time to address one in our time today. And this is, uh, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. I've already kind of alluded to this, but here's what the writer of Hebrews writes. He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. Okay. So that's what people are going to say. That's the command. Let, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So some people would say, this is the case right here. Here we go. We have an airtight theological case. that This is why we are supposed to, we must, right? We must disobey the health orders. We must disobey the government. Like this, this actually passes the litmus test. We are being asked to not do something that God commands us to do. And to that, I would say, you're wrong. You're, you're absolutely wrong. Hebrews chapter 10, I think, I think Hebrews chapter 10, these verses, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, these are, these are profoundly important verses in the moment that we find ourselves in, but not for, not for the reason that they, they implore us to disobey the government. You see, it's really important for us to understand when, when this letter was written to this particular group of Christians, the, the, the apostle who wrote it wasn't writing to a group of Christians who were being prevented from meeting by their government. And he wasn't writing to them to say, hey, because your government won't let you meet, you must defy your government. It was actually the opposite of that. The Christians were free to gather. And their gatherings looked obviously very different than our gatherings did, but they were free to meet. They were free to gather and, and they weren't meeting together. They weren't gathering together. And because they weren't gathering together, they were starting to fall away from Jesus and disobey him and fall into sin and all these things. And so the apostle who wrote Hebrews chapter 10 is writing to the church and he's functionally kind of smacking them upside the head saying, hey guys, you can meet. Why aren't you meeting? And so why I think Hebrews chapter 10 is actually a deeply profound verse for us in this season is because there's so many people out there right now who are saying, oh, this is stupid. I hate online church. I hate Zoom church. It's dumb. Everything's dumb. And so I'm just going to, you know, stomp my feet and have a little adult temper tantrum. And I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Hebrews chapter 10 would come in and say, like, what's your problem? You need to meet. You need to be with the church. You need the church. You must be with the church. And if everything's we're, everything we're saying about lockdowns is true, suicides are up, mental health, marriages, all this stuff, how much more important is it than right now that we actually stay closer together, not further apart? And even though we can't necessarily be physically present, at least we have the opportunity to get on a Zoom call, to get on a phone call, to get on a FaceTime, to get on a video call, whatever it looks like, to hear the gospel, to pray with someone, to share our heart. It's profoundly important right now. So Hebrews 10 is vital for this moment. But it's not a reason. Hebrews chapter 10 is not a reason why we are to defy or disobey the government. In fact, I would say there are Christians throughout history and around the world who have and will die to have the ability to do what we are able to do in this moment. Let's not treat it with contempt. Let's not give up meeting together. Let's continue to press into one another. So back to the issue at hand. Is there ever a time then when the church should resist the government, right? This is where people come in and say, okay, Chris, so what you're saying is like, 
uh, you know, Nazi Germany were just supposed to go along with the whole thing, right? It always comes back to the Nazis for some reason, poor Nazis. And I would say, like, of course, of course there are times where we are supposed to, we are called to resist the government. I mean, I got into a conversation with somebody, against my better judgment, I entered into a Facebook conversation. Like, that, no good thing ever started by saying I started a Facebook conversation with somebody. But I did start a Facebook conversation with somebody one time around this issue. And this is great. I was accused of being the kind of person who sits to pee, okay? Now, full disclosure, I do sit to pee, but that's because my wife, she cleans the bathrooms. And she's like, if you don't want to clean the bathrooms, then you got to sit to pee because facts are facts and you miss. So y'all got to sit to pee. I'm like, I don't want to clean the bathrooms. I'll sit to pee. Seems like a good deal to me. But the implication, obviously, of that comment was that uh, I was a coward, right? Uh, listen, I am, I am not a coward. Like if, if the secular uh, thrust that we have in our society, the secular kind of agenda comes against uh, Christianity, the Christian worldview so strongly that we are told that we cannot preach a biblical sex ethic or we are told that we are not allowed uh, to preach on the exclusivity of Christ. Like, I'm telling you, like I got a sermon series on Romans 1, locked and loaded. We're going to launch it that Sunday and I will gladly go to prison, uh, start a prison ministry uh, from the inside. Like, not a problem. I'm good with that. I'm not scared of this moment. But, but here is what I would say. This issue, this moment that we find ourselves in, this is not the time. This is not the time to resist the government. This is not the issue that we should be choosing to resist the government. This is not the hill we should die on. It just isn't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German, a Lutheran pastor in Germany uh, during World War II, when, when Hitler, again, always comes back to the Nazis, when Hitler was in power, he wrestled deeply with these issues, these issues of civil disobedience. And full disclosure, his life ended uh, with his own execution for his participation in an attempt to have uh, Adolf Hitler assassinated. And here is what he said about the issue of resisting the government or civil disobedience. Here are his words. In deciding to disobey, disobey the government, the question we are really asking is what time is it? What time is it? In other words, pay attention to what's going on around you. What season are we in? Accurately diagnosing the situation is the linchpin issue for bearing righteous witness. If we miscalculate, it might be too soon to act, thus taking history into our own hands. If we miscalculate, it might be too late, thus failing to bear witness at all. Both undermine the Christian's credibility. So we must ask the question then, right? Is this the time? Is this the time? Obviously, I don't believe it is. The elders at West Village, we, we do not believe that this is the time. Our government has asked us to set aside, to lay down our rights temporarily, long time, yes, but temporarily, so that we can assist them in helping 
fight the spread of a global pandemic in our community, in our neighborhoods. How could we say no to that? It seems obvious, doesn't it? I want to close with a question. It's going to seem like it's coming out of left field, but it's not. The question is this, as a church, what is our mission? Why Why do we exist? We exist to make Jesus known. That's, that's our mission. Each, each week we, of this series, we, we started actually by taking some time to remind ourselves of God's story, his plan to, to make himself known in our world. Today we're ending with it. And the reason, that we, the reason that we started with it the other two weeks is because we wanted to adequately remember that this is, this is the reality for the Christian. This is the the. the the defining reality for us, that the idea of making Jesus known in our city and in our world, it drives every single decision that the church makes. And so what we have to do with this this question of resisting the government and civil disobedience is is we have to filter it through that same lens. So, So again, why do we exist? Do we exist so that we have the ability and the privilege to meet publicly and loudly in a large group on Sunday morning? Like, is that the primary reason for our existence? No, no, it's not. Uh, Do we exist so that we can exercise our legal rights and freedoms? No, it's not. It's not why we exist. Do we exist so that we can do what we want, when we want, because we want, just just because that's the way it's supposed to be? No, that's not why we exist. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm, I'm not saying those aren't good things. They are. They are good things that I enjoy. I love. I love all the things I just talked about. I love being able to do what I want, when I want, because I want. Who doesn't? They are not ultimate things, and they are not things that are promised to us by Jesus, We need to hold those things loosely because we exist for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make Jesus known. Church family, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. As a church, we have 10 years of faithful ministry in this city. My family, like just just the six of us, right? Team Sinusol, we've lived in the same uh, house now for going on 15 years the same neighborhood. We've actively been pursuing and loving our neighbors for the sake of Jesus. We've seen many of our neighbors come to faith in Jesus. And, And I can't help but ask the question, what would happen to that faithful witness if we were to make this decision? Again, that doesn't drive me. Because, I, I mean, there's going to be other decisions we have to make. There's going to be other opinions that we hold that aren't going to be very popular and aren't going to, you know, win us any popularity contests. But is this the time? Is, is this the issue? Is this the moment, right? Divide the church, tarnish our witness in the city for what? We don't even have a building, so we'd have to do it in a field or something. So... To get a few of us out in a field, socially distanced, like to have some clunky church. Honestly, like when I say it like that, I'd probably rather be on Zoom. But is this the time? It doesn't sound like it to me. Is this going to make Jesus known in our city? Resisting the government right now in this moment, in this way, at this time. Is that going to make Jesus known in our city. It doesn't sound like it 
to me. Jesus is the one who laid down his rights for us. To save us. To redeem us. To rescue us. To restore our relationship with God. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? His rights as God, he did not cling to, but he let them go. He humbled himself and took the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's who we follow. That's what we signed up for. That's who we exist to make known. You know what's going to make Jesus look great in this moment? Loving each other. Leaning in. Having a community that even through perhaps one of the darkest and most difficult seasons in recent history, we loved and we cared. Pressing into not fighting for our rights, but fighting for the well-being of our communities and our neighbors, loving them, serving them, sharing the gospel with them, sharing the hope or the reason for the hope that we have in this season, taking Hebrews 10 and embracing it and living it out. That's what's going to make Jesus look great in this moment. And so my prayer for us is that we would submit to the Lordship of Christ. In every area of our life, we would submit to his lordship. And then we would do the one thing that we have been asked to do, and we would do it so well in this season. Make Jesus known. That's it. That is it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that this world is not all there is. Uh, we, we don't have to cling to what this world has to offer, but we can humble ourselves. We can submit to you. We can submit to those you put in authority over us. And we want to do that. We want to make you look good in our city. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd give us wisdom and grace to know how to do that. We'd ask that you grant us humility. But ultimately, we ask that through the testimony of our lives and the testimony of our church family, the testimony of the church in our city, that that in this city you would be made known. That is our heart's desire. That is our longing, far greater than, than anything else we could have. We want that. We want that more than we want lockdown to end, restrictions to go away, things to go back to normal. We want people to know you. Help us, Lord Jesus, make that be a reality. We pray in your good name, Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen, church. Thank you.